4: today's thursday may 7th 2020 coming up on roland martin unfiltered the man who leaked the video the shooting of Ahmad arbery steps forward we'll also talk to arbery's mother right here on roland martin unfiltered The governor of Maryland, Republican Larry Hogan, vetoes the $577 million bill that would increase funding for HBCUs. Oh, I got a few things to say. And where's that black lieutenant governor, a graduate of Howard University? Why is he so quiet? Cops are going wild during this pandemic. We'll show you more examples of police brutality from cops across the country. AFSCME and civil rights leaders are, lead- are leading on making sure that the next stimulus bill includes aid for state and local governments. We'll talk about that with Lee Saunders, the president of AFSCME. Also, an audit shows that $94 million meant to help poor residents in Mississippi was stolen. We'll chat with Martell. Senate candidate Mike Espy about that issue. And A new AP poll shows that the pandemic has been especially tough on black people and people of color. Financially, no shock. Faith leaders have also become activists advocating for people during this viral outbreak, and Virginia's voting rights laws should set the example for the country. Folks, it's time to bring the funk. I'm Roland on Bar- the filter. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's
5: on it.
6: Whatever it is, he's.
4: Uh, the person who released the video, who leaked that video showing the shooting of Ahmaud Arbery has stepped forward. He is a lawyer in the town of Brunswick, Georgia. This is the video that we were referring to. Of course, it was the leaking of this video, which led to the district attorney announcing that they were going to actually uh, pursue, take this to a grand jury. Well, the issues with that is not, and then led to national coverage. Now, all of a sudden, national media is interested. Vice President Joe Biden has made comments about this here. The White House was asked about this earlier. They were preparing a report to get to Trump as well. That's the only reason all of a sudden this now has become a national story, because the video was released. But it was interesting is that, why? What is the story behind this? I'm going to pull this story up. Uh, This is from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Um, this is, well, for some reason, I can't, can't pull this story up for some reason. Um, and this attorney uh, says that, and he wouldn't say if he represented anyone or not. He's a criminal defense attorney. Go to this my iPad, please. There had been very little information provided by the police department or the district attorney's office, but there was entirely too much speculation, rumor, false narratives, and outright lies surrounding this event, said the attorney, Alan Tucker. I didn't release this to show that they did nothing wrong as it's being circulated. Yet when he was asked about this, he, of course, um, really couldn't answer the question. I'm scrolling up uh, here, and when he was was asked about it, it's, here's good, right here. Tucker's involvement, let me pull it up right here. Tucker's involvement is something of a mystery. He said his firm has not been retained to represent anyone involved in the case, but in the very next sentence added a caveat. We may be, we may not be. I love this community and have spent my career helping people in this community. My sole purpose in releasing the video was absolute transparency because my community was being ripped apart by erroneous accusations and assumptions. Here's the deal. The reality is that George McMichael, Travis McMichael, father and son were the ones who were involved. That's them right there. Also, there's a photo circulating of the father uh, with his Trump hat on, his MAGA hat, Trump shirt, doing a thumbs-up sign with the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp. Now, what you also have here, though, is that there was another man... Was following behind him. He was the one who actually uh, was shooting the video. Uh, and again, I'm going to pull that name up in a second. And so the sort of problem right now is, it's again, understanding really what's going on here. Now, in the next hour, we're going to talk with um, the mother of Mr. Arbery. That'll be in the next hour, and so we look forward to having that conversation, but right now, I'm gonna go to my panel on Dr. Greg Carr. He's the chair, Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University, Erica Savage-Wilson, host Savage Politics Podcast, Reese Colbert, Black Women's Views. All right, glad to have all of you here. I, uh, I will start with you, Erica, since you are a native of Georgia. Um, mm-hmm. It is strange for this attorney, a defense attorney, to say he released the video, because here's the first deal. How did you get it? Mm-hmm. Who sent it to you? And then we may or may not. Sounds to me like, no, you're likely representing the third guy. That's probably what happened here.
7: hmm More than likely. And thinking about the former Secretary of State, who I would not dignify as saying Governor, the former Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, who readily opened up the state for black folks to shop. But February 23rd, when this lynching happened in broad daylight, um, he has since now not opened up the governor's mansion, nor has he opened up the courts so that justice can be served. And so, around this whole lynching, um, I think the unfortunate piece is that, you know, at a time where black folks are um, disproportionately being un- uh, affected by COVID 19, that then there's this other layer of trauma that's being added with the video. And so, you know, since Roland Martin Filtered has really been pushing his story for quite some time. I know the NAACP put out something today to say that we are done dying. This is an opportunity for folks to use their social media for something good. By number one, elevating by using your name and your voice to let governor uh, to let the former secretary of state know that we see him and that his late response, his politically expedient Twitter is oh, not enough good. to say that you know, his heart goes out to the family and that he's doing what needs to be done by way of an investigation that should have been happened. It should not take the trauma of black bodies to have to force him to do the right thing. So I think that us being a collective, lifting our voices to let um, um, Kemp and uh, all those other officials uh, that uh, we see, the McMichaels, that we see them, and that though we have our hands on several pots, we're not letting this go. And so justice has to be demanded. We have to stand with this family today.
4: Um, uh, go back to my iPad, please. This is from the Land Journal Constitution story. Uh, William Bryan, a resident of Satila Shores, uh, who was helping the McMichaels corner Arbery, he was the one who actually was shooting that video. The reality is this your Greg. If that video doesn't get leaked, we're not, this is not a national story. Now, we had Lee Merritt on the show last week talking about this here. But NBC, ABC, CBS, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, none of these networks are doing this. You're not having all the response from celebrities and others. It's all because this video got released. So we we do need to be asking what's the motive of this attorney of releasing this video, being a defense attorney, and asking the critical questions. Well, how did you get it? How, well, how's it in your possession? And two prosecutors, go back to my iPad, please. It was initially Brunswick Circuit District Attorney Jackie Johnson, the prosecutor, who rec- recused herself. Then it was George Barnhill uh, who was assigned the case, who recused himself. Uh, and so then we have this third uh, the DA who now is the one who said, I'm not going to pursue this. And so this was intended, Greg to be an absolute cover-up. They thought people were just going to forget.
3: Sure, but, I mean, uh, and we had to be able to chew gum and and walk at the same time. Um, When you interviewed Brother Merritt, and and you all made the point, it's very important to understand that you don't need to convene a grand jury... Yep. uh, ...in order to, you know, to arrest these men, to jail them, um, to prosecute them. It's very important that we need to be able to do both these things. While we are focusing on the details of how this video got leaked, of who has a motive, we also must understand that without a framework for being able to interpret these events, we will be spinning our wheels. What do I mean? That video was going to come out eventually, and this public outcry was going to happen eventually. Anytime you have white supremacists and white nationalists like Brian Kemp, Doug Collins, and others decrying and saying they're going to investigate, that isn't isn't a a search for justice. That's a preemptive strike. The the phrase we need to be focusing on here, as we focus on the details, the broader conceptual framework we need to focus on is rule of law. What do I mean by that? on a day when a 37-year-old gets elevated to probably to the DC Court of Appeals Mitch McConnell's boy on a day when this criminal attorney general says that we're going to drop our, char- our investigation of uh, Mike Flynn what they're saying is if when we control the law you have to obey the law what we don't want is black people to turn away from any possibility that the rule of law is in charge. So when you see a sister like uh, the sister uh, Sarah Anthony in uh, Lansing, the state rep who was surrounded by three brothers with long rifles going into the Lansing State Capitol because she said clearly the rule of law has failed up here. When we see them release this video and then all these white supremacists line up and say, oh, this is a travesty. No, what they're trying to do is set it up, go back into 1892 and read Ida B. Wells' Lynch Law in all its phases. See, when you convene a grand jury, then you can say, well, the lynch mob of the grand jury said that there was nothing to see here. When you uh, say that we're going to get justice, when the governor says that, then he's hoping that black people won't say, you know what? I'm not even going to worry about it. There's a Second Amendment. Everybody gets strapped. And the next time you show up on somebody, I'm going to blow your brains out. In other words, what they're trying to do is get ahead of an obvious situation so that finally black people, they can try to convince them, oh, just let the law run its course. So I don't think that this was anything other than a tactic to try to get ahead of what was inevitable, which was going to be the release of this video. And at that point, they can't get out in front of it.
4: Recy, um... it's it's no doubt all of a sudden the cover your ass game is being played it's all cya Mm -hmm. and like i tweeted i do not call this da a hero because he's going to a grand jury the fact of the matter is these three individuals now could easily be arrested two of them directly for murder one of them as an accessory to murder they should be arrested and so that's what you're seeing here and now with the pressure now, all of a sudden, demands for uh, the first DA, Jackie Johnson, to, to, to resign. Now the pressure, Barnhill should resign. George, now the governor, he's now commenting. Oh, uh, Trump comments about, uh, you know, what, what the, the, the pain of these, these parents and what they're experiencing. All these things are now happening only because the video got released. And if it was not for that release of the video, the account of these three individuals and the account of the prosecutor would be the final word that's a fact
1: it's, it's it is a fact but it's also very disturbing because one of the perpetrators as we as you mentioned actually recorded this video so mm-hmm. i'm i'm curious was the was what was the purpose of this to get off on the video to try to you know to share it amongst friends i i think it is a valuable uh, question as far as how did the video get to this defense attorney I'm sick and tired of black trauma porn being shared yes. over and over on the Internet, and it requires yes. people to be sickened by black men being gunned down. There was another gentleman who was gunned down just last night by the cops, and the cops said that's close—that's going to be a closed casket funeral. I'm tired yes. of this trauma, this re-traumatization of these videos circulating, being the necessity for even an investigation, for even a grand jury. All of these damn DAs, all they did was kick the can, and they're still kicking the can down the road. A grand jury is kicking the can down the road when, as you said, they should be arrested right now. We don't even know where the hell these people are. I mean, they could have fled the country. Anything could have happened. But the sense of urgency and justice, this this um, murder happened back in February, and we're, we're just now starting to get to the bottom of it a little bit. It's very disturbing, but I just, I'm sick of seeing these images and I'm sick of it taking that much just violence and, 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 and trauma for anybody to stand up and pay attention. It should have been enough right off the top.
4: Uh, folks, again, Absolutely. in the next hour, we will talk with the mother of the young man who would have who been 26 years old. Her birthday Jeez. was on Friday. Uh, Amont mm-hmm. Arbery will talk to his mother in the next hour. You don't want to miss that conversation. All right, folks, let's go to our second story, one that we have been focused on for several years, not only on my TV One show, but here <laughs> on Roland Martin Unfiltered, and that is the lawsuit that HBCUs or advocates of them filed against the state of Maryland when it came to duplication of programs. The federal judge pretty much said, Maryland, y'all screwed these HBCUs. During the testimony, an HBCU ex- expert said they should be receiving about a billion dollars. The HBCU said, we'll accept $577 million. When Martin O'Malley was the governor, he offered $100 million. They said no. Larry Hogan comes in saying, my final offer, $200 million. They said no. I was a part of the protest in Minneapolis, Maryland at the state capitol uh, a few months ago regarding this. Guess what? L- l- the legislature comes back Passes it unanimous in the Senate. Today, three hours ago, Republican Governor Larry Hogan vetoed that bill, rejecting the $577 million for HBCUs. Due to the current challenges, Hogan said it would be irresponsible to permit a bill like this that requires an increase in spending to become law now mind you so let me just take y'all back what happened in the 70s was that the hbcu's being in, being ingenious came up with with specific educational programs that would be attractive to students black white regardless well what happened the white students sought one to major in these things, so they went to the HBCUs. There was a dramatic increase in non-black enrollment at the HBCUs. So what happened? Same thing white artists did with black music. The predominantly white institutions copied the programs of the HBCUs. Well, what do you think happened? if you could go to a University of Maryland looking at the resources and the dorms and the facilities and the research dollars compared to a Morgan State or a Bowie State, all of a sudden, you would go, I'm going to the University of Maryland. And guess what happened? The HBCU saw a drop. They were harmed due to duplication. So the judge determined that Maryland did indeed hurt the HBCUs by allowing the duplication of programs to exist. And they sued. It was a 13-year lawsuit. They thought it was finally over. And now Larry Hogan decides to do this. But here's what's also interesting. I'm gonna pull a photo up of it. Because I told y'all what happened here. I told you that before the rally, I had to present an award at the uh, Capital Region Minority Supplier Development Council. And in the presenting of that award, I called on those black and minority business owners to flood phone calls to the state capitol in order for them to tell the governor, sign that agreement. Well, one of the people who was being honored that night is Boyd Rutherford, the black Republican lieutenant governor of Maryland. And I said, he, a Howard University graduate, should be standing up for those HBCUs. So we were backstage. And when Rutherford was coming off the stage to get his award. I was in a waiting room with the rest of these different people. So I stepped in the hallway so he could see me in the hallway. He then proceeds to tell me I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. I said, well, I know exactly what I'm talking about. I've covered this from day one. I said, you're more than welcome to come on my show to discuss. No, I don't want to come on your show, but I'll talk to you, I'll sit down with you so I can explain to you the deal. First of all, y'all, the federal judges ruled that Maryland did not discriminate against the HBCUs historically in the funding of the universities. Not sure how they came to that conclusion. But the federal judges did say that was de jure racism that existed in terms of duplication of programs. So how is a black lieutenant governor of Maryland, a graduate of an HBCU, Howard University? I'm a graduate of Texas A&M. You see, this is the shirt, that's my Aggie ring right here. This right here is, right here, my, my shirt. How can a graduate of Howard University not be a forceful advocate of funding HBCUs in Maryland? I, I was texting members of the Black Caucus earlier. The Black Caucus. The votes are there. It passed with such a wide margin that they can override the veto of the governor, Greg Carr. But the fact that they even have to do that shows you the attitude that Larry Hogan and Republicans in that state have for HBCUs.
3: question. I mean, well, the first part of your analysis of the brother um, all HBCUs, because there's something that Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael used to say about uh, Howard. He said, at Howard University, you have everything in the black world, and it's opposite, meaning that when people say the black community is not a monolith, like that's some kind of revelation, uh, human beings are not a monolith. And there's always going to be a Negro ready to hold the coat of a white man doing dirty. And so that's, that, that's what we're seeing in, um, in Maryland right now. But Larry Hogan didn't just veto that bill. She, he vetoed the Kerwin bill. Uh, which followed in the uh, wake of the Kerwin Commission, which took up from the Alvin Thornton Commission of years ago, Educational Equity in Maryland. Uh, He vetoed a a, a bill uh, to put uh, checks on long rifle purchases. He even vetoed a bill to uh, increase funding to fight crime in Baltimore. So Larry Hogan was busy today with his little veto pen. But this is one reason I suspect it was unanimous. It passed the Senate unanimously. Those Republicans in the Senate knew that uh, Hogan was gonna veto this bill. What will be interesting now if uh, forget the lieutenant governor i mean he's he's always he's already chosen to be a footnote in history howard notwithstanding the question will be whether or not when returned to the legislature whether you'll see that same type of support to override the veto because what I suspect finally as i said is that those Republicans in both chambers knew what was coming down the pike so to be on the right side of history as a gesture they made it unanimous realizing that hogan was going to try to stop it at this point anyway.
4: Um, the, again, it was unanimous in the Senate, um, and, uh, in the House, uh, most GOP members, Reesey, did vote for it. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm actually, I'm trying to pull up the actual number. Uh, and so, so the numbers are there. Now the question is, now the question is whether or not, uh, you're going to see, um, whether or not you're going to see, um them stay with that vote. That's the real issue next.
1: I think that is the the real test. I I think what we're seeing is, per usual, black people are the first on the chopping block. This is a long-running lawsuit. There was a harm that was done, and this is to try to settle, not completely rectify, but settle over a period of 10 years, additional funding for HBCUs. When we're at a time where COVID-19 presents an opportunity to make things more equitable rather than regressing, regressive in society, Larry Hogan, of course, and the GOP, is I'm expecting, will side with keeping these regressive policies in place. I'm tired of Black people being on on the chopping block. HBCUs earned this funding. They were entitled to this funding. And it's just complete BS that they are trying to use this as a pretext And I think that we are going to have to really, really push back hard against putting black people, putting people of color on the chopping block because of so-called funding challenges, when at the same time, Larry Hogan vetoes a tax that could have increased revenue. So you can't say that, you know, we're having funding challenges, so you can't fund HBCUs, money that they're entitled to, but then you also don't want to raise taxes. It doesn't add
0: up.
4: Um, uh, Erica, again, uh, when the bill was passed in March, mid-March, it was passed in the House of Delegates 129 to Mm 2. It was unanimous in the Senate. So, the votes are there. On the face of it, the Maryland General Assembly will override the President's veto. Again, I would think, go to my iPad, please, this is the brother who's Lieutenant Governor. Boyd (laughs) Rutherford. Howard university graduate well i would dare say this lieutenant governor Ruther- uh, rutherford you more than anybody should understand the importance of funding hbcus so will he stay in lockstep with hogan because guess what he wants to run for governor next
7: of course he does There's something that's always said about Republicans is that they fall in line and Democrats fall in love. And I hope that this is a real, real, thinking about the um, 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 Governor Hogan's um, election around how many Democrats lined up with him. I hope that this is something that they're also tasting and having a bitter taste around. Um, HBCUs are imperative. When you're thinking about Uh, this occupant that came into the White House, how we saw an increase in the number of students, to include my own son, attending HBCUs because there was a feeling of safety, of understanding, of being in a communal body of people that look like you and feeling safe, professors respectively as well. And so when we look at this, when we look at how um, Larry Hogan on one end is propping himself up, boasting, doing the things that executive leaders should, of course, be doing. But then we're also having to, as a community, as a collective, also pay attention to the things below the fold where he's having his foot on his neck and harming those very institutions, those very bodies that produce some of our greatest scholars, our greatest minds, like a Dr. Gregg Carr. All of these Mm -hmm. things that we have to consider. So it's important to be very, very much so apprised of these things and how though immediately they may not seem that they cause any harm but in the long term they do
4: uh this was the uh press release greg was alluding to that that the governor put out uh announcing uh, his various actions um and talking about the sudden turmoil things along those lines that exist um and then uh, i'm scrolling down here Um, and uh, so he has his veto letter. This is his veto letter that he sent to the president of the Senate as well as the Speaker of the Maryland House, Adrienne Jones, uh, an African-American woman. So he says in here, the State Board of Revenue estimates Maryland will lose $2.8 billion, including nearly $1 billion in income tax revenue in just three months because of this virus, a 50% decrease in revenue over the next 90 days. Days. And so he says, for this reason, I'm vetoing the following legislation House Bill 1260, historically black colleges and universities funding. Uh, and then he lists the other bills here as well. Bottom line is that black people always have ha- have got to wait, Greg. <laughs> well, it's true. I, I-, I always got to wait. And here's the deal here's the deal, Governor. You could have actually agreed to the $577 million dollar settlement back in August back of in course. September, or October, or November, or December. But see, Hogan's not fooling anybody. Hogan no. sent a letter to the head of the Maryland Black Caucus saying, this is my final offer. He didn't want 577 He only wanted them to get $200 million. And for folks who are doing the math, that's $200 million over 10 years. That's four institutions. Do the math. We're only talking about y'all five million a year.
3: But this is a this is a deadly time for historically black colleges. As we just heard uh, my sister Erica say, you know, she came out of Albany and you know Albany State. I went to Tennessee State. We, we you know, we're field HBCU Negroes. I understand what that means. That means the state HBCUs, the Gramblings, the FAMUs, the North Carolina Ts, the Virginia states, these rely on the state. For funding. And right now, higher education, public funded higher education, is under siege. But if you're not a flagship university like the University of Tennessee was to Tennessee State or the University of Mississippi was to Mississippi Valley or Jackson State, then you are extremely vulnerable. And in fact, this is uh, this argument is really what sent me to law school. I was an undergraduate at Tennessee State when the state legislature, under threat of a federal lawsuit, was trying to figure out how to increase resources for black colleges. But as you said, Roland, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Equity Act, is where you get the argument that you can't duplicate programs at these schools. So one of the solutions, when the lawsuit in Tennessee, which was the Geyer lawsuit, Geyer versus Alexander, was in place, the Mississippi lawsuit, our friend Alvin Chambers, when you see the lawsuit in Mississippi, Ayers versus Fordyce, what they said was one of the ways to increase resources for HBCUs is to give them programs that will attract other people, And as you said, in the state of Maryland, when uh, Morgan State got um, an online uh, um, uh, MBA program, executive MBA program, that is to cr- increase revenue for them. But what did the criminals of the University of Maryland system, led by that chancellor at the University of Maryland College Park, do? They then went and put the same type of programs, as you said, at those schools, which is a direct, illegal, unconstitutional violation of the Mississippi lawsuit, the Tennessee lawsuit, and the higher education lawsuit. That's why they went to court in the first place. So where we at right now, with Larry Hogan playing this game of chicken, is not the first element of this. It is coming out of the illegal act of the white public colleges in Maryland and duplicating programs that were put at the black colleges to increase the revenue. So it's all a criminal enterprise, as Ida Wells would say. This is funding lynching law in all its phases.
4: Recy and Erica, go ahead. Final comment. No, I was... Go ahead, go ahead. Recy, Erica, go ahead.
7: I'll just say um, I echo everything that Dr. Carr said and understanding that uh, these uh, HBCUs are under attack, um, that uh, really what we're seeing is that someone who does not have any care a black life, for a black um, educated life, that um, he could really care less of outcomes and seeing that all skin folks aren't kin folks? Is that just much more? And I just really go back to folks paying attention to who's on the ballot and understanding who has your best interest. That as we um, approach another election year, that's definitely gonna be um, a tough election year to go ahead and have a good understanding of who it is that's on that ballot because now we're in a place where we're actually depending on executive and state leadership. And then those folks, like you're seeing with the former Secretary of State of Georgia, when they do not have their best interest in heart, death comes next.
4: Racy, go ahead.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree with Erica. The stakes are so much higher coming November. We have to make sure that the people that get into office are people that are going to value HBCUs, value Black lives, and that are not going to put us on the chopping block. Because we know we are always the first ones to go whenever they have these austerity measures, whenever they want to cut back on something. Black people, and Latino people are the first place they look.
4: Dan, what I want to know, here we go to my iPad. I want to know, when is this brother going to say something? When is Lieutenant Governor Boyd Rutherford, the number two official in the state of Maryland, a black man, a graduate of Howard University, how are you not going to stand with the HBCUs? So you're picking party over HBCUs. That's exactly what you're doing. And I say Boyd Rutherford, no, I'll leave his photo up. I say, Boyd Rutherford, have the guts to stand with HBCUs versus Lieutenant, versus the governor, Larry Hogan. Be your own man. That's what you were trained to do at Howard University. Don't put party before the interest of Towson, University of Maryland Eastern Shore, Bowie. Bowie State, as well as Morgan State. Bottom line is, these universities were doing the right thing. They got screwed by white officials in Maryland with duplication. Mm -hmm. And so it would be nice (laughs) to hear you something. And I was on your Twitter feed, Lieutenant Governor Boyd Rutherford, and you had a lot to say about the National Day of Prayer. Well, I guess we should pray you (laughs) say something about HBCUs. I'm not going to hold my breath. Mm. All right, folks, we're seeing cops go wild all across the country. Uh, This is a video from Los Angeles, Jasmine Koenig. Uh, Of course, we also had her on the show. Jasmine Koenig posted this video, and you can see in the video, brother's not doing jack, he's handcuffed, but clearly the cop did not like something the brother said to him, and so this madness ensued. uh cop not too particularly happy then of course there's sean reed the brother in indianapolis who live streams a car chase between him and cops uh and he was shot and killed by the police officer it was all being streamed this is a warning for you to watch watch this video go ahead
2: what street is this i'm finna park this motherfucker to get the fuck out on baby oh baby what's this michigan and what michigan and what ace i'm finna park this motherfucker at eight on 62nd and in michigan somebody come get my stupid ass Please come get me. Please come get me. Please go get me. I'm on 62nd in Michigan. I just parked this motherfucker. I'm gone. Please come get me.
4: So you see the cop uh, covering his face there. Also, there was a comment that was made uh, with regards to um, him uh, being uh, casket-ready, something along those lines. I'll pull the exact comment. Folks have been protesting in Indianapolis. Uh, no, No other further details what this car chase was about. We've seen these videos also recently from New York, how black people have been treated when it comes to safe distancing. White folks they're giving them masks, black folks getting slapped with handcuffs, getting beat up. Uh, again, you, and you look at the case got one in L.A. I mean, the brother's sitting there in handcuff. Okay, okay, fine. He cussed the cop out or whatever he said. That don't mean you beat the hell out of somebody. But the other problem is his partner did nothing.
1: Yeah, I mean. People just feel like it's hunting season. They feel like they can get away whatever the hell they can get away with. And a lot of people, the only thing that's actually having any kind of accountability is the fact that we have cameras now. These people are doing this stuff without any regard, except for the fact that these cameras and these footage is leaking. And it's just, it's ridiculous. It's not okay. To hunt black people, whether you are uh, calling yourself making a citizen's arrest like the people were down in Georgia, which is really just an excuse to be a vigilante and harass and target black people, or whether you are a police officer, I'm sick of it. I mean, today it's we are we don't want to die or something. NAACP was trending. It's it's sickening, and it just seems like it's it's reaching a fever pitch in the past couple of days.
4: Uh, Erica, go ahead.
7: Yeah, and so that campaign Reese was talking about from the NAACP, we are done dying. And I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to be very honest, for my birthday, for Mother's Day, I'm getting a 380. My boyfriend is buying me a 380. I am tired as hell. And let me say this, to be very, very clear, one thing, I don't give a damn what he said. This man in Los Angeles was in handcuffs. And so to see him being effectively boxed upon by one punk and then the other punk that sat back and watched, that is immediate grounds for termination and they ass should have been thrown in jail. Sean Reed, for that to have been live streamed and for then him to have been gunned down and effectively an old punk to stand on top of his body and effectively laugh about it, and then you have these two Backwood Deliverance characters out of the state of Georgia and Brunswick, which also, the Absentee Ballot Task Force, some of the Brunswick officials are a part of that, led by the Secretary of State, Brad Rasberger. there. What BC said, it is open hunting season, and then that video footage is being played over and over again. We don't know where. Listen, they have gotten their marching orders from their president. I'm saying this. I'm tired... But I'm done as well, and so I'm being proactive in that. And so that video that you talked about earlier with the woman that was being led to the state capitol by those brothers with those weapons, and they were about it and ready, that is where we're at. When we're saying that we're done dying, what we're also saying is that we are actually ready to pick up the reins, because I said this on your show, Roland, back in 2019, and I am sorry that I'm having to keep saying this. But welcome to the new era of civil rights. It is it is past time. What COVID-19 has allowed for is for the stillness for people to see that otherwise, you know, just kind of like say a name, hashtag this, to really understand the depths with which white folks are going to make sure that they retain control of this country. It is time to not only say we are done dying, but be damn meaning that we are done
4: dying. Uh, Greg, uh, it's no shock that, uh, that whatever character, Jason Whitlock, would be critical of LeBron James. This is what LeBron James tweeted. We literally, we're literally hunted every day, every time. We step foot outside the comfort of our homes. Can't even go for a damn jog, man. Like, WTF, man, are you kidding me? No, man, uh, uh, are you kidding me? I'm sorry, Ahmad. rest in paradise, my prayers and blessings, uh, sent to... Uh, the family. Like I say, uh, Jason Whitlock took exceptions to that we don't care because he's a joke uh, anyway. But Greg, again, the problem is that, and I keep saying this here, as long as cities are responsible for these police brutality cases and you're not taking that money out of those pensions, it will continue. You start taking money directly out of the pensions of these cops, trust me, they're gonna think twice about swinging on somebody.
3: They might. They might. Uh, in the in the first video you saw uh, we saw, it was uh, really a quite, quite a metaphor for white male supremacy. Here we had a run of a man who couldn't pick up the black man who was cussing him out as he tried to punch him. And after uh, raining a number of apparently very weak blows on this black man, uh, the brother was standing there looking him in the face like, that's all you got. <laughs> Meanwhile, his accomplice... Uh, standing back uh, in fear for her own uh, life, and she probably wanted to stop, but she didn't want to get caught. With one in punk blows, but I love how this black man just stands up and looks at him like, "That's all you got, my man." Throws his camera down, his little phone down, and a little tiny fit of uh, shrunken white male supremacy. And uh, and that's really what this is about. Now, you know, Rici, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, when the NAACP says we're done dying. You know, I, I hate to say it, but... Uh, and that's why, Erica, I, I shouted like I did when you said you can get in that 380. Uh, we're not done dying. We are not done dying until we decide we are done dying. And then that's not about marches. That's not about hashtags. And I, it, it reminds me of the brother from Monroe, North Carolina, and his wife, uh, the great Robert Williams and Mabel Williams, who were mm-hmm. over the NAACP chapter in that little North Carolina town mm-hmm. until they said that we're going to form a rifle club at which Mm -hmm. point the NAACP suspended them. And go get their book, Negroes with Guns. In other Mm -hmm. words, what we are facing is a situation where every time we get gunned down, we say this has to end, and then we don't end it. Let's be very clear. They're worried about their money. The police union, yes, the lawsuits might back them up. But when you're facing a, a, a shrunken, shriveled piece of a human being, like the one we saw in the first video, and then something less than human, which which we saw in in Indianapolis, you're talking about people who in that moment really wouldn't be scared of a lawsuit. They are exercising their, what Francis Cress Welsing might say, their fear of annihilation, of genetic annihilation, of white male genetic annihilation. And so if we must die, let us nobly die. But frankly, I think that if we all went out and got us a 380, a couple Mm -hmm. of little deuce deuces or whatever we gonna have legally, and then when they run up on us, like I said, with the sister in Lansing, she ain't got to worry about nobody running up on her because ain't nobody going to spit in my face. I got three firemen with long rifles. And guess what? Not only am I not going to die, today is the day you question whether or not black lives matter as much as
4: your life because I'm getting ready to take it if you get in my face. All right, folks, let's Ask go me. to our next story. ASME is leading a big push along with civil rights leaders and members of Congress to make sure that the next stimulus bill includes help for frontline service workers. Joining me right now is the president of ASME, Lee Saunders. Lee, glad to have you back on the show we've um, we, 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 we have heard so much about, again, the frontline people, and you keep, we keep hearing essential, essential, essential. But you got to make sure, though, that if you're opening up all these businesses and opening the states back up, those folks better have PPE, better have masks, better have uh, goggles, and things along those lines. I don't think these people even care about that. They're just like, okay, whatever, open up, and then, you, you know, you live at your own peril. What's, what's happening
2: right now, Roland, is that... Uh... You have a mentality uh, with certain people here in Washington D.C. who believe that people can risk their lives every single day. Uh, they can uh, be exposed uh, to the uh, coronavirus. They can expose their families. Uh, they don't have to work with the proper PPE, with the proper equipment, and everything is okay. Well, everything's not okay. Uh, people need to be taken care of. Uh, we have everyday heroes in the public service every single day. Whether you're a nurse whether you're a sanitation worker, whether you're a social worker, whether you're an employment services worker trying to get those checks out every single day. uh, And uh, they're risking their lives going into work without the proper equipment. Now they have a double whammy where state and local government are actually running out of money because the tax base is crumbling. And you have folks that have given a lot of money to the corporation uh, to help them uh, helping small businesses, but by the way, uh, we have found, and I think the uh, uh, the conference, uh, the leadership conference on civil and human rights, found that 90% of African Americans and people of color who own small businesses are not receiving those funds. Okay, but in the public service, workers who perform tax are not with a. The-
4: All right, we are. You bro- broke up there the last, so repeat that last comment, Lee.
2: I said that the uh, people who are providing essential public services every single day and risking their lives are now threatened with a pink slip, with being laid off, with being furloughed because the tax base is crumbling in Washington, D.C is not providing aid to state and local government.
4: Well, what you have is you also have this attitude where Donald Trump doesn't care. If it's not a red state, he only wants to support those people who can help him in the election. You got Mitch McConnell who has said, hey, cities and states, you got problems? File for bankruptcy.
2: Well, number one, states can't file for bankruptcy. That's an idiotic and absurd statement. Uh, This is not a red or blue issue. This is a life and death issue for these everyday heroes, for these people who are providing public services, essential public services, to the citizens of this country. And they deserve respect, they deserve the necessary equipment, and they deserve to have help from the federal government, as the federal government has helped corporations, as they have helped small businesses.
4: Well, on that particular point, we talk about helping these businesses, I mean, that's the whole deal. When you got the cruise industry who wants to bail out, and they're not even US-based companies, okay? They're headquartered offshores uh, for a reason. Uh, other companies, of course, who are stashing cash left and right, you know, and, and, and that's what's crazy to me. Uh, I'm sorry. These the people, the workers in these cities, in these states, they don't have offshore accounts. And let's break
2: it down further, Roland. Let's break it down further. I grew up in a household in Cleveland, Ohio, where my dad was a bus driver. That was the way. And he was organized. He was a, a, and a member of the Amalgamated Transit Union. Public service was a way for African-American families to achieve a decent lifestyle, be able to move into the middle class. And that is being destroyed right now. You look at what's happening with the coronavirus. African-American families are being affected much more at a much higher rate than white families across this country. And black families don't have the kind of health insurance and health care that other folks have. They have pre-existing conditions. All of these factors contribute to a decline in our community of life. You our community is trying to move forward. And we need support and we need help from the federal government. And that's one of the reasons why we developed, asked me has developed a campaign uh, where we are pushing the need and talking about the importance of the provision of public services. Who provides those public services? Who provides clean water? Who picks up the trash every single day? Who provides health care in this country? So we've got to continue to push that every single day. The impact that it has on the minority communities as survivors and, and, and the fact that elected officials are not doing anything to support the public services necessary to keep this country going, it's, it's a shame. And it's ridiculous and we've got to stand up we've got to make our voices heard so we're running an ad campaign a major ad campaign all across the country talking about the importance of public services and the federal government must step up to the plate.
4: Uh, if folks want to get more information about that campaign where do they go?
2: They uh, can come to our website uh, the american Federation of state county municipal askme.org uh, we have commercials. Uh, We're even doing a letter, Roland, and I would hope that you would sign off on it. We have a letter uh, that has been signed by uh, clergy, by faith-based officials, civil rights organizations, talking about the need for state and local aid to uh, the citizens of this country to continue the vital public services that everyone must
4: have. And in fact, um, this. this, so guys, go ahead and roll uh, one of
0: those ads. Go ahead. We can face this pandemic head on. We can do what it takes to protect our families and our communities. Together, we can get our economy moving again, but not without the tools and resources we need to get the job done. To win this fight, it is going to take a public service army. Don't let Congress fire the frontline workers who can save us. Text FUND to 237263 to tell Congress to fund the front lines.
4: All right, then. Uh, Again, Lee, this is going to be important because uh, the the reality is this is going to be the battle. And when you look at the numbers, it's a whole bunch of people who look like us, who are those frontline workers.
2: That's exactly right. So uh, we appreciate your support. brother. sign that letter. We're going to be sending it in tomorrow. Uh, The National Action Network is working very closely with us on this, along with other faith-based organizations and churches and civil rights organizations.
4: All right. Lee Saunders, President of Aspey, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, we certainly appreciate Ask Me being uh, one of the partners here at Roland Martin Unfiltered. All right, folks. As of today, there are one million two hundred eighty-seven thousand four hundred ninety-seven confirmed cases of coronavirus. Seventy-six thousand six hundred ninety-three people have died. Two hundred fourteen thousand nine hundred six have recovered. Now we got some news, uh, Greg Carr. That's pretty funny. Uh, yeah, and I will say funny. Donald Trump is livid right now because one of his personal valets at the White House has tested a positive for coronavirus. And so he's lashing out at his staff, saying, uh, not protecting him, no, 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 but you're the one who went to Honeywell who didn't want to wear a mask. You're the one who has said you think it's silly to wear a mask. You're the one who has stood at news conferences with people next to you with nothing. In fact, when they had the nurses in the Oval Office... They were asked, why aren't y'all wearing masks? They were like, well, we've all tested negative for masks so it makes no sense for us to wear a mask. Here's what he don't understand. You can test negative today, but you might be positive tomorrow. And so, and then, of course, with Mike Pence, when he went uh, to um, uh, the uh, Mayo Clinic, uh, he didn't wear a mask, trying to be all Mr. Macho. Then later, oh, man, I guess I should have worn the mask because he got criticized. And so, excuse me, uh, Trump, if you upset because your personal valet got coronavirus, because you act like it's no big damn deal.
3: Yeah, you know, we know, of course, Roland, and, and it's, it, again, everyone now is freely using the word lie. Don Lemon has had a complete 180 conversion into blackness. Uh, everybody across the spectrum. But all they gotta go do is go back to every broadcast you've been on since Donald Trump has been in this presidential conversation. You nailed this from the beginning. You can't... Not only can you not believe a word that he says, you can't believe anything anybody around him says. Somebody says, oh, you think Donald Trump has coronavirus? My honest answer is, I don't know. Because you can't trust anything they say. And this man, who's one of his personal valets, is a member of the armed forces. He's a Navy guy. And so this man is risking his life walking around all these white supremacists who are... Um, and I'm gonna call it virtue signaling—not virtue in terms of good, but virtue in terms of white nationalist values. They're not—they're not wearing masks to signal to their the members of their clavern that I'm with you. So this is not an accident for Mike Pence. This is not an accident for Trump and Honeywell. And as you said, finally, in the White House, in the Oval Office, when that nurse from Louisiana was like, "I can't really get." My uh, getting what I need in terms of PPE, my people, and he's sitting there holding himself like he always does try to control. That's not what I'm hearing. Look, man, you're a liar. You're beneath contempt. There's nobody running the federal government on behalf of the uh, so-called American people. And so, you know, for all we know, you're not only not asymptomatic, you might very well have the coronavirus. I have no idea, is what I'm saying. So, yeah, he's just mad because... He's a germaphobe and has been since the day he came out of his mother's womb, apparently.
4: In fact, uh, Reese, uh, Vice President Joe Biden camp not uh, drop this hard-hitting ad showing exactly the fundamental problem when you have a reality person playing President of the United States.
6: President Donald Trump is tweeting out support for Michigan protesters. These
8: are people expressing their views. They seem to be very responsible people to me. I want them to be appreciative. And I say, Mike, don't call the governor of Washington. Don't call the woman in Michigan. If they don't treat you right, I don't call. Yeah, no, I don't take responsibility
4: at all. See, that makes it perfectly clear with the lack of leadership we see right now. Absolutely.
1: And I think Biden is doing the right thing by pulling
7: back the state's Because uh, Donald Trump
4: has a strong advocacy. Hold tight, one second. Hold tight, one second. I'm having some audio issues with you. Let's sort that out. Erica, uh, go ahead and respond, please.
7: Yeah, so Donald is a liar, he's out of shape. He anything that comes out of his mouth is the furthest thing from the truth. He wishes he was a tenth of President Barack Obama. He's mediocre, he has a limited vocabulary. So <laughs> anything out of his mouth, particularly remembering that he is the son of a Klansman, has no credibility whatsoever. Um, to even see him or hear the laziness with which he even speaks is disgusting. And to know that at his feet, are seventy six thousand deaths so far just from covid nineteen and then thinking about our brothers and sisters and children that are still locked in cages that are still being detained in texas and in other states um across the nation, he has so much blood on his hands he and Mike Pence, and so I think that um to the degree where he is spazzing out and that that is being covered it's it's illegitimate to me. What uh, these mainstream media's who are so in love with every move that he makes—the responsible thing to do for folks that still tune into that mess—would to be actually to report, just like uh, what we saw in the Biden video, to continue to hold to um, account what he's guilty of, and he because it's not leadership.
4: All right, Risa, go ahead.
1: Yeah, no, I'm like I, I was just saying that Donald Trump is running ads as well, where he paints a completely different picture, and we can't overestimate the I don't want to say intelligence of the American public, but how tuned in they are with the ins and outs. I mean, at the start of this coronavirus pandemic, Donald Trump was getting high marks because a lot of people weren't really in tune with it. So it is critical for Biden to beat this drum and make sure that people aren't just seeing these glossy ads from Donald Trump. And yeah, I know you would think, well, people hear the death tolls, people hear, you know, the numbers of infected, but not necessarily everybody's going to place that blame at Donald Trump. So this is more of what Biden and the entire Democratic Party needs to do, not just for Trump, but also for Mitch McConnell and the GOP that refuses to provide relief.
4: All right, folks, Uh, Director Antoine Fuqua, of course, uh, training day and of course, the equalizer, uh, put this piece together to honor those folks who are putting their lives on the line to save others during this pandemic. Truly appreciate Antoine Fuqua for that. Folks, got to go to a break. When we come back, we're going to talk with uh, Mike Espy about this story out of Mississippi. $94 million supposed to go to the poor, but it went to four tickets to football games. $1.1 million went to Hall of Famer Brett Farr. Really? We'll discuss it next right here in Roland Martin Unfiltered. You want to check out Roller Martin Unfiltered? YouTube.com forward slash Roland S Martin. subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roller Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roller Martin Unfiltered. Like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's YouTube.com forward slash Roland S Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. Mississippi is one of the brokest states in the union and an auditor there found federal welfare money was used to pay NFL Hall of Famer quarterback Brett Brett Favre $1.1 million for speaking engagements they never showed up for. After Favre's failure to reply to the many text messages the Associated Press sent his manager, Bus Cook, told the AP that they had nothing to say. Far doesn't face any criminal charges. But the other issue is that what they discovered is that money was spent on all kinds of other things: tickets, concerts, you name it. Joining us right now is Mike Espy, who's running for the United States Senate from the state of Mississippi. Uh former congressman there. Uh, Mike, glad to have you back on Roller Martin Unfiltered. This is just crazy. $94 million for the poor, and it was treated as a slush fund by some state officials.
5: Yes, Roller. This is a widening gap.
8: Here, miss ball comes
4: up. I'm having trouble. All right, hold tight one second. Looks like we're having an issue there with the audio. So, folks, let me know if we can just quickly get that repaired, uh, and if we can't, with a Skype, just get Mike on the phone. Because I do want to get his thoughts on this. And so, Mike, let's go ahead and talk again. Let's see if it's got gotten, gotten fixed. Okay. Go ahead. Repeat your comments again
8: you speaking with me? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, well, sure. Yeah, I was just telling you that this scandal is deepening and widening every day. We found out in February from my audit report that $94 million of TANF money, welfare money, money from a program called Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, uh, there was a conspiracy to embezzle $94 million dollars. And at the same time, there were, you know, 98% of the 10 of applicants were rejected because they wanted to repurpose the money to be sent for personal, uh, personal purposes—cars and entertainment tickets and speeches by Brett Favre. 94 million dollars stolen from the welfare program in Mississippi be repurposed for. Or Republican operatives and friends of political leaders. So that that scandal was uncovered in February, and six of those uh, conspirators were indicted, and now the stories are coming out every
4: day showing us just how bad it was. And and we're talking about, I mean, look, this is supposed to be going to poor people. Yes. You're giving, you're giving Brett Favre a million bucks for speeches he didn't even give? He never gave, he got $1.1 million
8: to make speeches that he never gave. So the TANN program is a program to to take indigent people and try to lift them to build their capacity. For those who never graduated grade school or high school, to make sure that you can push them into a GED, or industrial school. For those who uh, 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 needed jobs, Make sure that you can help them with resumes, a job opportunities for women who were single out of households, to make sure they had child care, to make sure you could build them into some sense of self-sufficiency. That was the purpose. But I'm telling you that 98% of the applicants were rejected, and they only gave 5.4% of the money to the applicants and 95% of the money to private corruption.
4: Also, I'm seeing here that $650,000 was spent on Bibles and grammar. I mean, really?
8: I mean, it's it's more than that. Uh, Apparently, they love sports figures because not only did they give money to Brett Favre to make speeches that he never made. You remember the wrestling star, Ted DiBiase? Yep. All right. They gave Ted DiBiase and his son millions of dollars for programs, wrestling matches, and books that Ted DiBiase wrote that nobody read. So, I mean, this just goes on and on and on. And so I'm just saying, I called three months ago when we first heard about this for a federal investigation. It's good enough to have the state auditor of Mississippi to uncover this, and that's fine. But we need to bring in the full weight of the Office of Inspector General of Health and Human Services, the, the originating cabinet department that block granted the right, $94 million to Mississippi Department of, of Human Services. So I've called upon that. And then I called upon Cindy hyde Smith, my opponent in the Senate race, to give back the $3,500 that she received from one of the principal conspirators. Mm. So we put on that yesterday, and then yesterday evening she agreed to donate the money. So it took me coming out, calling her out to show some accountability, that she's finally beginning to do it. Two, but there's more she has to do, Right. because the money came from the Appropriations Committee of the U.S. Senate,
4: and that committee—that's the committee in which she sits. So we've got to do much more to clean this up. Two million dollars for wrestling ministry. Money going to hotels, steakhouses, lobbyists, books on Ten Commandments. Absolutely ridiculous. While people who are poor desperately needed those resources. Uh, we certainly appreciate it, Mike Sp, for you weighing in on this. Keep the pressure up yeah. to get people to do right in Mississippi. Hey, now, you know I'm running again for U.S. Senate. I need your help. Well, MikeEspy Okay. Mike, we got it. MikeEspy.com. What's that again? mikesb senatecom Okay. All right, Mike. We certainly appreciate it. Thanks a so bunch. We'll have you Thank back you. on talking about that race. All right, folks. Uh, top of the show. We told you that a lawyer in Brunswick, Georgia, Georgia has announced that he released a video uh, that shows uh, the tragic shooting death of Amad Arbery. This has unleashed all sorts of uh, repercussions. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation, now they are involved all these things happened because the DAs were sitting on this evidence and were not going to move. That, folks, is undeniable. And I think it's important for us to understand that. So don't all of a sudden say, oh, my God, is re- they doing the right thing. No, no, no. They had no intentions on doing the right thing until this became public. Joining us right now is somebody who's been personally affected by this. Uh, she of course uh, is the mother of of Ahmad Arbery. Also joins us uh, with uh, Lee Merritt as well. Um, um, first and foremost, uh, just just condolences for losing your son. He, um, if I'm correct, his birthday was it Friday. It was, he will turn 26 years old.
5: Yes. Uh,
4: that has to be um, just just difficult. But I. I got to First of all, before you even get into all the stuff of the last two days, just just let folks know who Ahmad Arbery was.
5: Ahmad was uh, my baby boy. Um, he has two two siblings: one sister, one brother. And again, he was the baby. Um, I had him back in '94 on Mother's Day, so around this time is was really
4: when we celebrate Mother's Day as well as his birthday. Um, one of the... Cooper Jones, uh, he, according to the stories that we read, he was an avid jogger. He played football in high school.
5: That is correct.
4: Um, when... The, so here we are in May. This happened in February. Um, when this took place, um, were you just simply perplexed as to how your son is dead, because he simply went out jogging. And also did he live did he live in that community, live nearby, anything along those lines, because he was running running in that area.
5: And that is correct. He lives in our know, subdivision is about three, three miles from where he was jogging. Um, and I never worried about him jogging because that's what he did um daily. So I didn't have any concerns or I, and nothing was posed where I had to become worried when he
4: went out talking. I want my pound to get prepared to ask some questions as well, so just want to let y'all know in advance. Um, the fact that we are here, uh, we covered this story last week. We had Lee Merritt on talking about it, New York Times did a story. But 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 frankly, um, uh, Ms. Jones, national media didn't care, but it wasn't until that video got leaked where all of a sudden people began to pay attention. And the problem here is that you and the family you had not seen this video. The DA's office that, sat on the video. Y'all found out when we found out, correct? That,
5: that is correct.
4: Um, Lee, Mary, that, that's what really strikes me when we talk about where we are now. I just fundamentally believe that on a third DA, that they were t- hoping this thing would go away and not have to, to adjudicate it For them to say, oh, now I'm gonna go to a grand jury, it's only because that video's out.
9: No, I I absolutely agree. Uh, The level of corruption that is being exposed by this case, and you know what, Ahmad's legacy is going to be the exposure of a great deal of corruption in the criminal justice system in South Georgia. Uh, They were hoping that this case would go away. They were hoping that they could murder a man in the streets and that there will be absolutely no consequences for anyone involved. And the legal apparatus was going out of its way to make sure that that became a reality.
4: Um, I want to go to my panel f- with questions. First up is Greg Carr. Greg, you're talking to Wanda Cooper Jones and Lee Merritt. Yes, of course.
3: Uh, Brother Merritt, uh, again, thank you for continuing to stand. And, Mrs. Jones, I mean, you, there are no words. Um, I know how my mother would feel on my sister versus then my nephew. Um, you talked about, Ahmad in a way that, I don't want to use the word humanized because he's a human being, but that reveals to the world who this young brother was. Um, you know, help us understand, if you can, um, and I think about Sister Sabrina Fulton, of course, Trayvon Martin's mother. Um, at this moment, nobody wants to be in the in the spotlight that you're in and I know this has got to be incredibly difficult. What do you call on those of us who are feeling this pain just by by kind of proximity to you? What are you calling on us to do? I mean, set aside the just, I mean, justice would be restoring your son's life, of course, as Sabrina Fulton says. I mean, but what, what do you want us to do? Because I know we're going to act, but we need we need to hear from you in this moment if you can articulate even a bit of it for us.
5: I just need some assistance on trying to get these men indicted. They really need to go to jail. I mean, I just, uh, two months and two weeks has been too long. I mean,
7: something has to happen. Thank you. Erica? Yes, and um, I don't, um, I'm a mother, so I can, I have, um, I cannot imagine. So my um, most earnest condolences, uh, Mrs. Jones, to you to your children, to your family, and um, blessing upon Mr. Merritt and the incredible work you're doing. My question for you would be, have um, the local city officials, have you received any support? Um, Have they been standing with you? Um, And is there perhaps anything that we could do in that capacity um, to help move them um, towards that place if they've not?
4: Ms. Cooper-Jones, did you hear a question? Uh,
5: I'm sorry. I thought that was Lee's question. I'm sorry. Can you repeat the question, please? I'm sorry. I thought that was Lee's question.
7: Sure. Um, Have you received any support from any of the local um, city elected officials? And is there something that if you have not um, that we could do in that way to help um, move them towards to um, providing some level of support from your local city officials?
5: Okay. Um I just recently I began to receive um support. Um the case had been out there. The, the the crime occurred back in February and just last week when it went public is when they reached out um to help me. I mean, when it first happened, no one reached out. There was no support. There was um only articles coming in the newspaper which which had the the stories of the of the murderers in it. So no ma'am, there was no support. I mean they they have came in with some support within the last week, but two months ago there there was absolutely no support at all.
4: Racy.
1: Um Miss Cooper Jones, you have my deepest condolences. Um I I think I read somewhere that you were actually told a different story about um, the incident occurring in the home versus outside. How how much has the story changed in terms of, you know, what you're now seeing happen what transpired from that video compared to what you were told by the authorities?
5: Um, initially, I was told that there was a burglary and a mom was confronted by the homeowner. There was a confrontation, and at that time, there was a struggle over the firearm. Um, I kind of questioned the story before the video came out because the news articles that, that was coming out said something t- totally different as well. Um, I, have not, I have not viewed the video, but I've had um, some of my siblings to do so, and what they've described is nothing like I was told at first.
4: When we talk about um, what's happening now, Lee, I'll go to you. This attorney, this defense attorney, releases the video says he's not representing anyone, but then says he may or may not. Does that seem strange to you?
9: It is It is actually very strange. Because these men haven't been uh, charged yet, they have the liberty to kind of play these games where uh, their attorney, who is clearly their attorney, uh, releases a video and attempts to uh, impact the outcome of this case, uh, uh, but can say, can hide his hand and say that, uh, you know, he doesn't represent anyone just yet. Uh, it's clear that 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 he intended to somehow influence the outcome of this case uh, with the video. The scary thing for me is I believe that he thought this video would help his clients, and um, because the culture is so backwards there, that they thought that that excuse of a um, of a citizen's arrest was valid here.
4: Um, Ms. Juana Cooper-Jones, as Greg alluded to, uh, you are now a part of a sorority that no black mother wants to be a part of. Um, We talk about mothers of the movement, people who have lost uh, their children to police police abuse, lost their children to police shootings. You look at Trayvon Martin, uh, Sabrina Fulton, uh, Tracy Martiner, um, Trayvon's dad, what they have to deal with. Um, just just explain for the folks watching you know, what you've had to endure for, two, for the last two months knowing full well that the individuals who clearly shot and killed your son uh, have not been brought to justice by anybody, and it took yelling, kicking, and screaming just to get to this point we're at right now.
5: It's been hard. I mean, it's just, just the fact that he's gone and he's not gonna be, I can't see him, I can't touch him, I mean, it's really hard. I'm, and at this point, I'm not for sure whether I've, I've even really processed it. You know, I think I'm still still in a numb stage and I can't heal, I can't begin to heal because it's just, it, it wasn't worked appropriately. And, and then I was beginning to heal, and then the video came out. It's, it's just been a nightmare. It's just been really hard.
4: And, of course, we, the governor weighs in. Vice President Joe Biden weighs in. Now Donald Trump is weighing in. But I would think the only thing that can actually bring you any sort of solace is to actually see these handcuffs slapped on them, go through the legal process, and then being convicted and found guilty of murdering your son.
5: That is correct. That, I mean, that it, it won't bring him back, but it will make me feel better.
4: Well, we're going to continue to cover this story. Uh, it is one that we covered before mainstream media decided to do so. Uh, we're going to certainly stay on it. Uh, we thank you for your strength and your courage. Again, prayers to uh, all the family of your son, Lee Merritt. We certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot as well. Thank you, sir. Okay. Thank well, got to go back to a break. We'll be back at Roller Bark on the Filter in just a moment. So a lot of y'all always asking me about terms some of the pocket squares that I wear now I don't know Robert don't have one on nope. now I don't particularly like the white pocket squares I don't like even the silk ones and so I was reading GQ magazine a number of years ago and I saw uh, this guy who had this this pocket square here and it looks like a flower uh, this is called a Shibori pocket square this is how the Japanese manipulate the fabric to create this sort of flower effect. So I'm going to take it out and then place it in my hand. So you see what it looks like. And I said, man, this is pretty cool. And so I tracked down. the. It took me a year to find a company that did it. Uh, and so uh, they're about 47 different colors. And so I love them because, again, as men, we don't have many accessories to wear. So we don't have many options. Uh, and so this is really a pretty cool uh, pocket square. And what I love about this here is you saw uh, when it's uh, in in the pocket, you know, it gives you that flower effect like that but if i wanted to also unlike other because if i flip it and turn it over it actually gives me a different type of texture and so therefore it gives me a different look so there you go. So uh, if you actually want to uh, get one of these Shibori pocket squares, we have them in 47 different colors. All you got to do is go to rollingthismartincom forward slash pocket squares. So it's rollingthismartincom forward slash pocket squares. All you got to do is go to my website uh, and you can actually uh, get this. Now, for those of you who are members of our Bring the Funk fan club, there's a discount for you to get our pocket squares. That's why you also gotta be a part of our Breena Funk fan club. Uh, and so that's what we want you to do. And so it's pretty cool. So if you wanna jazz your look up, you can do that. In addition, uh, y'all see me with some of the feather pocket squares. My sister who's a designer, she actually makes these. They're all custom made. So when you also go to the website, you can also order one of the customized uh, feather pocket squares uh, right there at rollinessmartin.com forward slash pocket squares. So please do so. And of course, uh, at Goes to support the show, and again, if you're a Brina Funk Fan Club member, you get a discount. This is why you should join the fan club. All right, fam! Online church services have been going viral since the pandemic started. Many pastors are reminding their congregations uh, of this uh, and the goodness and promises of God during this challenging time. However, many have questioned whether it was God's will for the virus to spread or if it was sent as punishment. Hmm. In addition, activism grounded in the values of faith is playing a crucial role in the midst of the pandemic. Faith leaders, particularly in the black church, are making a difference by partnering with organizations to provide PPE and giving a voice on issues such as gun violence and voter suppression. Joining us right now is senior pastor of Relentless Church in Greenville, South Carolina, John Gray. Pastor Gray, how you doing?
10: I'm doing well, Roland. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your show. And I do want... Pocket
4: squares, and I need some ass <laughs> as well. Um, well. We'll certainly we we'll have to hook you up on that one. Got to do that. Um, uh, you you you've always had an extensive online ministry. People being able to watch your services on Facebook, on YouTube, on Periscope, on all the different platforms. Uh, but but it it man it's, it's been hard trying to get a lot, a lot of other churches to wake the heck up to this whole deal and, and understand that. Look, you have to move to the 21st century, and you can't be congregating uh, and having people all packed in churches. This has changed all of that.
10: Yes, uh, church as we know it has fundamentally changed forever. Uh, ask yourself this question. Do you want your aging parents sitting next to strangers as they cough? Do you want your children and children's church next to children that you don't know their hygiene regimen? Church has changed and we are going to have to deal with a new reality. For us, uh, our audience is larger than our in-person audience. So we've always put a lot of infrastructure into having a global reach uh, while still having uh, local outreach. So that's very important for us, meeting the needs of our poor, our underserved, our elderly, our, our widows, our veterans. That's always been a big part of who we are. Uh, we're going to continue to do that, um, and the truth is, if you do not adapt, churches will not survive. Um, I have a lot of uh, thoughts as to why that is and and what we where we are uh, from from a, a global standpoint, the church. But I would I'm just going to let you kind of lead the congregation or lead the conversation. But for us, we've been we've been. Uh, preparing for something like this for quite some time.
4: And, and on that, I mean, and so you, you you can't just prepare yourself or your staff. You also have to prepare the members. Um, mm-hmm. I was reading a story in South Korea. Uh, they put in some extremely strict uh, 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 practices in place. They've said no shouting in church. They've said no singing in church. I said, man, and I saw those rulers said, I don't know how that's going to go down in some black churches. No shouting or singing. Uh, I'm like, I don't know about all of that. But again, those are things that people have to factor in when you talk about uh, droplets in terms of coming from your mouth, uh, how that could spread coronavirus.
10: It's unbelievable that we're even because uh, expressions in worship vary from culture to culture, as you know. The African-American church expression is not one that is uh, quiet. Uh, it's expressive, it is emotive, it is engaging. Slap your neighbor, high five, hug five people. Uh, those days are have come and gone. And uh, I think that we're going to have to deal with the reality that uh, if you read the New Testament, the book of Acts in chapter two, the Bible says they continued daily in the temple, and they grew from house to house, which means that the actual original church grew from house to house, not building to building. And I think for too long, uh, certain aspects of Western Christian thought have uh, idealized uh, gathering in buildings when in fact, the original intent of God was for us to never get comfortable in edifices, but, but build our faith in our homes, and then with our neighbors and then spread that way. That's what he said in Matthew 28. He didn't say build a building and tell them to come here. He said go. And so since maybe some of us weren't getting that message, I believe he allowed this moment to force us out so that our faith could be seen uh, outside the confines of the four walls. Let
4: me ask this question before I go to questions from my panel. And this, so whenever people say, why did God let this happen? And I keep reminding people uh, of the very basic two words free will that's first two that's that we have the capacity to actually stop whatever happens coronavirus did not actually have to happen uh, we played a video from the folks uh, at vox.com where it was the it was the uh, it was the growing of exotic animals that were not being eaten by the poor in china that were being eaten by the elites in china But the government changed the rules that facilitated uh, having these exotic animals uh, in these wet markets. uh, And that created the condition and the space for this to actually happen. That doesn't have to happen. And so I think people get so caught up in why did God let this happen as if they want, we just, to me it's like, okay, we want to do whatever we want to do. God, now come in and fix this thing and save me from doing it. No, you know you didn't have to actually do that. That's
10: right, uh, free will. You said it best, Roland. You're a theologian as well as you know.
4: No, I'm bootleg. Uh, my my wife, she, she got papers. She ordained. <laughs> she went to seminary. I'm bootleg. Let's be clear.
10: Listen, but but you you
4: <laughs> you got
10: papers by association. You got PBA. Um, what 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 strikes me is that people blame God for this, um, but the reality is. These are things that we created. I think there's two other things we need to consider. There's the difference between God-ordained and God-allowed. Did God create coronavirus to punish the world? No. That's not in his character. This is a wicked disease. It steals the breath from people. It, it, it cuts and severs families. You don't even get to say goodbye to your loved ones. There's nothing in God's character that reminds me of that. But is it God-allowed? I think so. I think this was allowed for a number of reasons. Number one, we have treated each other with contempt and disdain. We have no heart of empathy for our fellow man. We do not believe in equal inherent value of every human soul, we don't. We have not treated each other well. I believe the earth is a living organism. Romans chapter 8 says that the earth is eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God and it's groaning in birth pains until now, which means the earth is waiting for people who have a moral compass that points true north, that we can have uh, uh, honorable discourse among brothers and sisters, regardless of race, creed, religious background. We haven't been doing that, Roland, and I think for those of us who are believers I believe that God is saying for me and for those who are a part of the Christian church, um, you guys have been real relaxed in your presentation of me and you haven't been showing people who I truly am. And so I'm going to allow this to give you a warning shot to to get your act together. The Bible says judgment comes to the house of God first. So I feel like this was a, a shot over the bow of the church to say change your trajectory, change your uh, parameters change your, uh, your idea of success. Because before, Roland, you know it, success was how many people you could get in a building. Yep. Now success is how many people can you serve? How many meals can you, uh, distribute? How many elderly can you care for? And I think that was the original intent of the church, and I think that's the return, uh, that God wants.
4: Uh, let's go to Reese first.
1: Hi, Pastor Gray. So my question is, with the the social distancing rules being relaxed by the government, um, I think it's going to take more people just opting into observing these physical distancing things. What do you think the role is of the church to help um, your congregants and, you know, people who follow the Christian faith understand how, even though the government isn't requiring you to stay home or even though the government is requiring certain things of you, it's still important to take these precautionary measures?
10: Thank you for the question. The the first answer is I can tell you what we're not going to be, and that's the control group. Uh, We heard uh, one of the governors from one of the states say that the church is the control group, uh, meaning we're going to see what happens with the spread of this virus with those who go first, and then we'll figure out what to do. I've already determined that whenever they open up the state of South Carolina and lift restrictions uh, beyond... Our church is still not going to open in a physical location. I can't have on my conscience the reality or the possibility that someone contracts this virus and maybe loses their health or their life because I want to gather. Uh, There's no amount of money or notoriety or any of that that is worth the possibility of losing a life. Um, I think it's important for... For pastors to take the lead because there's two sides to that. One side is you lack faith. If you call yourself a man of God, then why don't you open the doors? But faith does not lie, and faith sees facts as well. And in the multitude who counsel their safety, I think it's unwise for me to put elderly uh, African American individuals with pre existing conditions in a closed setting with people we don't know, and particularly when coronavirus is asymptomatic in some people, and you don't even know you're carrying it, and you can get other people sick. Um, We're going to have to let people know that we are not about just meeting in a building. We have to become more committed to um, what Dr. King called the beloved community, away from the building. So we're trying to be very front-facing in the community. We're, We're always doing things every single week, four days a week, we're giving away groceries. Um, fully masked, look like we're like in spacesuits, but we give groceries to anybody who drives up to let our community know that we are committed to them. But the reality is we may not go back to services in a building the way we did even seven weeks ago. And that's okay with me, as long as we can still practice our faith and and stay connected and stay alive. And uh, so I don't know if that answered your question, but I'm telling our congregation, that if there is a time when we're in the building, there's going to be protocol, and we're gonna wait until at least June to see what happens now that they've opened up uh, the communities again. I wanna see if the curve has flattened. If not, then we just won't go in. I'm not willing to risk anybody's life just to, you know, say we, we gathered. Greg Carr.
3: Well, uh, thank you, Roland, Brother, uh, Brother Gray, Pastor Gray. First of all, it's, it's really encouraging to hear that you, know, you all are, uh, that, that, that the community, that the congregation is serving, and that that's at the center of, of, of the faith uh, practice there. Thinking about religion as distinct from spirituality, I'm looking at some of the things come out of Haiti and West Africa. We know that for our people, the ritual kind of forms the crux of the religious practice that informs the spirituality, right? And um, it's interesting, as a brother, Chancellor Williams, Dr. Chancellor Williams, who was a great historian. People know his book, The Destruction of Black Civilization. A lot of people don't know he's from South Carolina. He wrote a book in 1952 called Have You Been to the River, which is a critique of charismatic leadership in the little storefront churches and some of the smaller churches in South Carolina. My question is this. Do you anticipate with us being a part physically in terms of religious practice, the possibility of the emergence of some of these uh, cult-like figures, that Chancellor Williams was critiquing back in the '50s, emerging online to siphon in some of that charismatic stuff and take us off in a direction that we may not have even seen back in the days when even Reverend Ike was riding high in terms of take siphoning that off and it being and using the cyber platform to do it.
10: First of all, that's a whatever you just said needs to be an entire show by itself. Uh, because you you speak about, I, I grab four different things that need to be addressed. Uh, first of all, Karl Marx said religion is the opium of the people. People will always find something to worship. Uh, what this season has done has taken away our idols. Whether it was sports, whether it was entertainment, whether it was the ability to come and go as we please, those things have been taken away. From 1619 until right now, black and brown bodies have been in chains, whether physical or emotional or spiritual, in this nation. And we know that Christianity was used to propagate everything from the Crusades to slavery. Uh, And so the idea of charismatic Jesus stems from the South and the need to believe that there's something after this torturous existence. Um, What it morphed into was a money-making machine that kept us at bay and and created a new era priesthood where you can only get to God if you get to me first, and you gotta give me money in order to get to God. And all of that is being torn down. And whether we're talking about mosques or churches or, or temples, all of it's being torn down because to get to the most high, the essence of perfection, we now have the ability to do that ourselves. I do not want people to uh, worship at the altar of John Gray. I am the first person to lead from my wounds. What I believe is that people are going to have to make a decision on what is truth. Now Now we are in the era of live your truth, which is, I respect it, but it's dangerous. Because what's true for me may be extremely harmful for you. There is a difference between truth and subjective truth. And so there will always be people, and the Bible calls them false Christs, or or people who prop themselves up for their own gain. But the first thing Jesus did in the last week of his life is he went into the temple and he tore down the tables of the money changers. It was symbolic of him saying, you're not going to pimp people uh, in an attempt to make them think this is how you get to God. And and so the the second thing he did, and I'll, I'll, I'll finish trying to answer your brilliant question, is... He, he turned over the table of, of those selling doves. And when Jesus was baptized, uh, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. And so what he did is he said, you can't buy the anointing. You can't fake being a genuine spiritual leader. And I think this season is going to draw a delineation, a mark in the sand that causes us to see those who are truly about the business of God and the versus the business of of ministry because they are two different things thank you erica
7: well first hallelujah amen thank you pastor gray um and you somewhat answered my question um when uh um, in your response to Reese, because my specific uh, question was i'm still connected with my church in georgia was that delineation that you talked about for people that um, um have the belief and that actually do say that Um, because they believe God, uh, for those who are of the Christian faith, because they are believers, that um, they believe that their faith will keep them um, from um, having COVID and not the exercise of wisdom. So what do you say to those people that are really saying that if a person says um, says themselves to be a believer, if they're taking all of these preventative measures and not going into worship uh, or the place of worship, that somehow that means that they don't believe God as strongly as they should. How do you counter that narrative or how do you address that?
10: I would respectfully direct them. First of all, it's a great question. Um, I would respectfully direct them to Exodus chapter 12, where God is speaking to Moses as the the last plague in a series of plagues to deliver people from oppression, which by the way, to the panel and to Roland, I think is significant that it's been 400 years that we've been in this country as a people. And it was 400 years that the children of Israel were enslaved and it was a plague that marked their freedom. And here we are, and there's a plague in the land. But in Exodus 12, this is what God said. He said, tell the people, Put the blood on the door. When I see the blood on the door, I will pass by. If I don't see the blood on the door, something on the inside is going to die. What God was saying is we're going to require some social distancing. The plague is coming. The only way that you're going to be free from the plague is if I see the blood on the door. He didn't say faith. He didn't say uh, if, if you tithe. He didn't say if you have deep spiritual insight stay in the house until the plague passes by. If I don't see the blood on the door, then that means you didn't obey the social distancing requirements to uh, allow this thing to pass you by. And so it wasn't even about faith. I could have been an Egyptian in a Hebrew house, but if the blood was on the door, he wasn't coming to get me because it was not about my faith. It was about obedience to a higher authority. The blood is on the door. Stay in the house. Let it pass by. Once the plague is done, then you can come out. And so, I think for believers, it's important to understand that faith and science are bedfellows. There's not. It doesn't dishonor God for me to listen to the scientific reports about what happens if we um, if we sever our our social distancing measures right now. What that will do to the curve. My faith doesn't stop me from from having this virus. I don't care how much I love God. God also expects me to use wisdom. I don't have to believe in gravity, but let me jump off a high building. I can assure you that my faith won't stop me from becoming a large brown pancake on the pavement. And so uh, to answer your question, my sister, I believe that there is wisdom in listening to our science... Uh, experts, our doctors, local, state, and national officials, um, but that will inform my faith. I'm not hostage to what they say, but I'm also going to to use wisdom. And if God told the Hebrews to stay in the house until the plague passes by, I think I'm going
4: to do that today. And like mm-hmm. I keep telling people, the, bo- <laughs> the, the bootleg <laughs> version is keep your behind at home. Amen. <laughs> Pastor John great. we appreciate it. Thanks so much. Look forward to having you back on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Thank you so much. All right, folks. Uh, Got to go to a quick break. When we come back, how the pandemic is exposing uh, the inequalities and how black people and people of color are bearing the brunt, not just when it comes to the deaths, but also financial. We'll talk with the Associated Press reporter uh, next on Roland Martin Unfiltered. You want to check out Roland Martin Unfiltered? YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roland Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roland Martin Unfiltered. Like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. <laughs> you want to support Roland Martin Unfiltered? Be sure to join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar that you give to us supports our daily digital show. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. As Roland Martin Unfiltered. Support the Roland Martin Unfiltered daily digital show by going to MartinUnfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20 of our fans, contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible, RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. All right, folks, in addition in addition to the fact that people of color uh, have been hit harder by the deadly virus, they're also enduring the worst part of the pandemic's financial impact, according to a recent survey from the Associated Press-Nork Center for Public Affairs Research. The poll found that 61% of Hispanic Americans have encountered household income loss, unpaid leave, and pay cuts. 37% of Latinos and 27% of Black Americans say that they have not been able to pay at least one type of bill. Only 17% of white Americans say the same. Joining us right now is the national race and ethnicity reporter for the Associated Press, Kat Stafford. Kat, glad to have you back on Roller Martin Unfiltered. This is, this is the piece right here that people need to understand. We keep, keep, keep talking about dollars and cents and talking about wealth or whatever, but it's real simple. If you got more money and more resources, you can weather a storm far better than people who have fewer resources. And so when the government is sitting here trying to figure out, okay, how do we deal with this? Th- this is that moment, This is the, this is that tragic moment that people are going to have to understand, we must confront.
6: Yeah, you know, really what this shows is a couple things. Journalists of color, especially black journalists, to be frank, we have been sounding the alarm on these inequities that have existed in our country, to be frank, since, uh, you know, we were brought here Uh, via slavery, right? And, you know, for a lot of us, this is not surprising to see these numbers come out. You know, the first step of this was to really take this racial data in terms of who's being infected with this virus, and now what we are seeing is the second step, which is the economic strife that we're seeing in communities across the country in terms of Black Americans as well as Latino uh, folks as well. And, you know, I had a story a couple weeks ago that really dove deep into the the pain that's unfolding in my hometown of Detroit. And what was also part of that story was this financial uh, issue that's really starting to bubble up. So when we see these uh, polls come out, for me, it's, it's sad, but unfortunately, it's not that surprising, because if you go back and historically look at some of the things that have happened in this country, if you look at Hurricane Katrina, if you look at the Great Recession, our community really still has yet to recover from those crises, right? So when you think about the long-term impact of COVID-19, when you're talking about Black people, when you're talking about other communities of color, we have yet to see the total magnitude of what this is really going to do.
4: Well, and look, we we always have said that uh, different groups uh, don't have enough money uh, to be able to weather uh, three or four, or five hundred dollars shift uh, in, in income, and we're actually seeing this. And I think that people that that at some point folks have to understand. Yeah, when you, when we, if you don't have a livable wa- a livable wage, fifteen dollars an hour, if you don't have savings or investment, if you're not in that position, you're not going to be able to handle what's taking place here. Two, three months, four months, potentially six months, not having a job.
6: Right, and really, I feel as if that, to be frank, is where the media comes in. This is where we should really be shining a light on this issue. And Roland, I know this is something that you've talked about. This is something that I'm passionate about as well. This is an example of why we need diverse newsrooms. We need people who understand these communities, who understand the impact of issues like this. Without us in these places, without us making these decisions in terms of coverage that you see, this will continue to go on. So I'm pessimistic. Um, I- I'm not sure if now that, you know, a lot of mainstream media outlets are finally reporting on some of these disparities that we're going to see systemic change, but it is encouraging to see uh, some of these congressional leaders, some of these state leaders and local leaders to start to pull together these task force. But really, uh, it's going to take a lot more pressure It's going to take a lot more of us digging into these issues. And let's be clear here, race is a part of every piece of America. It is interwoven within the fabric of this nation. So when you think about COVID-19, you can't talk about it without talking about race in these disparities that have existed
4: forever. Well, it's also quite interesting. I've seen some of the comments, people are upset with you because you report on race. And those are the people who don't want to accept the reality of race in America and how it has an impact in everything that we do, housing, education, finance, you name it, health, it does not matter.
6: Yeah. And you know what it's like. A lot of people attack journalists of color, especially black journalists on social media. But for me, I mean, it's part of the job. Um, I just feel like in this moment, my role is to really make sure that we are uplifting some of these voices that historically are underrepresented, historically are never seen on the pages of these national outlets. So, uh, people can have their opinions, but I'm reporting facts. I'm reporting facts and data and really showing what's happening on the ground in these communities.
4: All right, then, Kat Stafford. We certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Take Uh, care. Thank you very much. Erica, Bob Lunders is here. I mean, this is is that moment where public officials are going to have to stop ignoring the haves and the have nots, really the have nots. When you see in school districts 40 and 50 and 60% of the people not having access to technology, I was talking the other day uh, with uh, with a a school official uh, who said that what people don't realize is they're tracking this. They've got places where 60 and 70% of black kids aren't even logging on. Mm -hmm. Aren't even logging on for the assignments. Mm -hmm. And and now it's like, oh, okay, well, then it's like, well, are they playing around, playing games? No, if I don't have access, if I don't have a computer, I can't mm-hmm. log on. And so all these assumptions, Erica, that's been the part of the problem. People yeah. who are, in, who are in, po- in, in political power, the problem is they just assume, oh, everyone has a computer. Sure. Every, everyone has Internet. Everybody yep. has, like, I'm sorry, well, what's wrong with you? Everyone has these things. No. Sure. And I'll
7: give my hometown of Albany, Georgia, as an, for an example. We're thinking about a community of about 70 to 90,000 people, including the county. You're talking about folks that depend on one specific place to get their water, gas, and light. And if they're not able to pay that bill, which usually for folks that live on the south and the east side of town, ends up being $400, 500 $600 a month in a rural community that's 45 minutes away from the interstate, where you have people that are feeding off of Albany because it is, town. It is the city. When you add all those factors together, there is a historically black college there. So you have college students, some of which that are first generation college students. So when you have a place that's cut off like this, when people cannot even afford to make their utility payments now, because they're laid off from jobs that weren't paying a damn, And so now they don't have utilities. They already didn't have broadband. And then you also factor in folks who don't have proximity to an actual grocery store. The gas station is a grocery store. So now you have um, folks, guardians, who may not be able to pay rent. They can't pay light bills. They definitely don't have broadband because they're thinking about how in the hell they're going to feed people in their family. But the profile of people that are in these elected positions, again, elected positions, look at how they look. Think about Some of the black experts that we've seen that we hadn't even seen before that perhaps some people did not even know carried the level of jobs that they're carrying that are being threaded into this conversation now talking about COVID-19 and the disparities that we see in our community. And so there has to be a demand for these people who are in office to, number one, do the right thing and that also we have to make ourselves a part of the conversation. That is the importance of those members of the CBC and how dare anybody think about trying to primary the folks who are actually doing the work to make sure that some of the things that folks don't even think about are legislation pieces that will help black folks um, do happen. And so in just thinking about all of that, we have to also think about the profile of the elected officials. And as we've been talking about on this show throughout the entire time, is that this is why it is important, not just federal elections, but those state, those down-ballot races as well, because those people impact, whether it is known or not, our daily living every single
4: day. Um, Recy, um, Beto O'Rourke has talked about what's happening with food. He's a perfect example. We have seen these massive lines all over the country at food banks. All right, so now you have people trying to raise money, trying to sit here and, okay, how can we send money to food banks? He says it's simple increase the damn SNAP benefits. He said you have a federal system that is already set up where you can provide food to people, but we have an administration who wants to cut the SNAP benefits, but then we're also paying farmers not to grow food. That's utterly logical. Why would you pay somebody not to grow food when there are hungry people? When you can say, "No, we're going to pay you to create food and send it here." Yeah, absolutely. I, I to your point,
1: uh, you mentioned Better Works. So I'm going to mention Senator Kamala Harris, who introduced the Speak the Feed Act, which allows for restaurants to you know re- to to do something with the food that's left over. She's partnered with Jose Andres on that. Um, also, SNAP benefits, that's something she's called for. You also have the COVID Racial Disparities Task Force. And to Erica's point, we have to have a seat at the table. I saw that um, Vice President Joe Biden name-checked Kamala Harris's uh, bill. You can't outsource the response, the disparate response that, that Black people and people of color are experiencing to the Senate. You can't outsource it to the black elected officials. We need a person that's going to have a seat at the table. And so that's what we need to press upon in terms of our representation in the next administration, the people who are going to be weighing in on the people who get the cabinet positions, the people who are running FEMA. And, you know, as to Erica's point, the people that are actually in there doing the work right now, let's make sure those people get support and that they're not primary out of Congress with some Mm -hmm. newbies
4: coming in that
10: haven't Mm -hmm. been doing
3: the work. Right. Greg. That's right. No, I I think uh, what we just heard, uh, Erica, you laid out the framework brilliantly in terms of how we need to fight and what we need to be fighting for and what's at stake and how the relationship of race and class intersect. These people in the outlying areas making it more difficult for people with less money in the city of Albany to be able to work. And then, Reese, of course, by following that up, by naming the bills, naming the legislation that is in the federal pipeline, in particular with Senator Harris, Mm -hmm. and working with with other stakeholders. And now we have to understand that as a consequence of, well, after we inform ourselves, and as we inform ourselves, we have to act with a clearer understanding of where we live. I think for a lot of Black America, uh, the confusion around America comes by with all the facts we have up until the killings we saw again today on this show. To the contrary, we still wanna believe this place is somewhere other than what it is. Pastor Gray talked about religion being turned into a tool of capitalism. Well, that's because capitalism is the organizational logic of the country that we find ourselves in, and racism overlays it to keep it going. So, of course, they're not going to extend benefits because those benefits, they perceive, will go to black and brown people, even though it benefits more poor white people. Of course they're going to go to state capitals and say, reopen the state, because they're not going back to work. It's going to be black and brown people who they want to come back to work to serve them. And when we see Sister Stafford's article... And when you look at how this virus is no respecter of social class, where you see it fairly evenly hitting people under and above and below, I'm sorry, under 50,000 a year and above 50,000 a year, what we understand is that we are now in a position where we can't appeal to people who have proven time and time again they do not have the interests of even poor people of their own race at stake. It's time to stop being polite now. And if you're not going to vote in this election, then please prepare to suffer the consequences. But just like this virus, and you don't wear a mask, meaning you don't respect other people enough to protect them from you when you don't vote, what you're taking, you have basically taken your political mask off and said, I'm just going to spread whatever happens to me, to you. We've got to be smarter now, because if we're not smarter, this virus, which could literally rewrite the global political economy, could end up meaning the end of the federal United States of America as we know it.
4: What this, what this virus has exposed are the people who are frauds, are the people who are hypocrites, yeah. are the people who say they care about the poor <laughs> but do nothing. Is It has exposed evangelicals mm-hmm. who care more about right-wing judges When Mitch McConnell comes back this week and his whole focus is to elevate a 37-year-old man to the second-highest court, the D.C. Court of Appeals, somebody who was rated unqualified, who has never tried a case in his life, who was just made a federal judge last year, and six months later, you're trying to elevate him to that second court? Y'all, that's what they care about. It is not the people, and that's the real issue. Greg Carr, Reese Colbert, Erica Savage-Wilson, I appreciate it. Thank you so very much.
3: Thank
4: you, All right, I wanna thank the people who have contributed 50 bucks or more to join our Brain the Funk fan club Every dollar you give, certainly we appreciate we want to thank the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, Kristen Clark, for their uh, donation. Thank you so very much. Alexandria Prentice, Alva Moore, Angela Denmark, Anisa Perkins, Anthony Doss, Atoya, Bread From Heaven Ministries, International, uh, Constance Moore, Cornell Shelton, Daryl Dishman, Daryl Bev Bryce, Donna Burgess, Donna Frazier, Deretha Johnson, Dwayne Nicholson, Eric McWhorter, Eugene Evans, Felisa Cooper, Imani Enterprises, James Hollis, James Washington, Jamie Hooker, John Williams, Joyce Dukes, uh, Kenneth Shaw, Kimberly Bowie, uh, Kristen Clark, Mavis Knight, Michael Michael Washington, Mitchell Brown, Narita Collins, Oslo Inc., Robert Johnson, Rock, Rudolph uh, Howard, and Ursula Hamilton. I want to thank all of you folks. Don't forget, your dollars make this show possible. I mean, look at today's show. We had, of course, uh, the mother uh, of Mont Arbery and Lee Merritt, and of course, uh, having uh, 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 Mike Espy on, and having uh, Pastor John Gray, having all of these uh, experts that we've had on the show. This is why what we do, folks, ain't nobody else doing this on a digital platform, okay? As a matter of fact, it, look, I know you got Black News Channel, but you gotta pay for that, we free, all right? For all this cost, staff costs, the resources, the equipment, these things cost. And so we want our goal, by the end of the year, again is to have twenty thousand of our followers who are regular supporters of roller unfiltered and all we're talking about is 50 bucks i mean, if you can give less that's fine i totally understand that but here's the piece 50 bucks a year comes out to four dollars and 19 cents a month 13 cents a day it allows for us to be able to cover these stories to have lee saunders with Ask Me on the show talking about of course the need for aid to local and state governments, to have us covering and, and bringing to light these stories of these mothers and fathers who are losing their children to violence, but other people are, are ignoring, um, but they only pay attention when it becomes a quote, national story. When we talk about, of course, what is happening with uh, uh, HBCUs and the funding, that's why we do what we do. Uh, all this stuff matters, you can give right there on YouTube. Folks, there are more than 3,000 of you have been watching the show tonight. Imagine all of those people uh, actually gave. Same thing, of those of you who are on Facebook, who are on Instagram TV, who are on Periscope. Y'all, it's real simple. If we don't control our narrative, somebody else does. And we're asking somebody else to cover us. Please tell me, how far has that gotten us so far? So, cash out. R. Martin is dollar sign, R.M. Unfiltered. Guys, bring it up, please. Uh, PayPal as well, paypal.me forward slash martin Unfiltered. If you want to, send in money order. Cash is check. New Vision Media Inc., 1625 K Street Northwest, Suite 400, Washington DC 20006. Uh, we also now have uh, Venmo, uh, and I think we are are getting Zelle as well. I'll have all that for you, so we're going to add that as well. Also, if you want a credit card, use Square. Go to rollermarkandfilter.com. That's all you got to do. Again, folks, uh, we're building something great here, and our goal is to go from having one show into a network having multiple shows but you gotta start with one, and that has to be successful. So we certainly appreciate it. But everybody who gives 50 bucks or more gets a personal shout out from me on the show. So I'll see you tomorrow. Please support us in what we do. All right, folks, y'all take care. Have a good one,
0: provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. The
10: wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May.